0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The history of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt.
2: Soon after one o'clock, our pickets began to come into sight, returning before the enemy through the woods and slashing. The skirmish line of the enemy pursued them, and we could see both parties jumping over logs and making their way through the bushes, and hear at intervals the sharp reports of their rifles. A little later, a dense mass of men, about two rods wide, headed by half a dozen horsemen, marched toward us on the Williamsburg Road. They moved in quick time, carrying their arms on their shoulders, having flags and banners, and drummers to beat the step. Our three batteries opened simultaneously with all their power. Our regiment poured its volleys into the slashing, and into the column as fast as we could load and fire. The 104th Pennsylvania aimed at the column and at the skirmishers approaching its right front and flank. The regiment rushed forward with spirit, jumped a rail fence in its front with a shout and yell, but it was met so resolutely and with such a galling fire by the foe that it fell back in disorder, and did not appear on the field as an organization again during the day. The 104th Pennsylvania falling back cleared the field opposite the advancing column and gave the 98th New York a better opportunity to fire upon it as it moved deliberately on. The charging mass staggered, stopped, and resumed its march again. Broken, two, filled up its gaps, but sure and steady, with its flags and banners waving, it moved like the tramp of fate. Thinned, scattered, broken, it passed our right and pressed for the batteries. We poured our volleys into it, and the gaps we made, the lines we mowed, could be seen in the column, for we were only ten or fifteen rods away. The men behind pressed those before, and the head finally reached the redoubt. One of the mounted leaders ascended the parapet and was shot with a pistol by an artillery officer. The whole column staggered and sank to the earth. Private John Gere, 98th New York, Palmer's Brigade
0: When we reached the vicinity of the woodpile, where there was a big barn and several outworks that had been thrown up by the Federals, but which had been captured by our forces, we could see all the camp of Casey's division not a hundred yards from us. The shelling was now terrific. As we double-quicked across the field, the enemy had plain view of our brigade, and had trained their several batteries upon us. Shell, shrapnel, and round-shot screamed over us, fortunately a few feet too high. We pushed towards the enemy like a lance, instead of spreading out in a line. My company was in advance, the lance-head of the column. As we advanced close to the woodpile, the musketry joined the artillery, and to go into that fire-swept camp seemed like entering the jaws of hell itself. The onward gate by the column was kept up. "'Forward! Forward!' cried the officers, waving their swords above their heads. "'Don't stop, men! Charge the camp!' Into the camp we went, with yells ringing high above the uproar of the guns. As we passed the barn and got in among the tents, the tempest of war was frightful. Every deadly projectile which could take human life and maim and disfigure was showered upon us. The air was alive with their coming, and shrill and shrieking with their passing. We could see no enemy but the whole of Casey's division of some thousand men formed around their camp in the shape of a half-moon, pouring a converging fire at our brigade. It sickens me at heart as I write what followed, a result that could not have been otherwise. Mixed up, mangled up, crowded up among the breastworks, barn and woodpile, the brigade got bunched in a hump, lost its organization, and that splendid command of some six hundred muskets was forced to retreat. From the half-circle on either side of the camp the enemy rained a constant fire upon the struggling mass. Order disappeared. Discipline fled before that tempest. Within five minutes, all was over. Men fell in groups. The noise of the Federal bullets ripping through the fabric of the tents added to the horrors of the moment. Men screamed as the balls struck them. The officers shouted out unmeaning cries. The flag went down. Morrill, the color-bearer, and tallest man in the regiment sank to the earth. Corporal Diggs caught the colors, and he fell, too. A private grasped them. He raised the staff, and in a second he sank face downward with a bullet through his heart. Another gallant private, named Harper, seized the staff from the dead man's hand and bore the colors the rest of the day. In five minutes, seventy-four officers and men out of our regiment fell. Private Alexander Hunter, 17th Virginia, Kemper's Brigade
2: Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 136 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. With last week's show, we finished setting the stage for the Battle of Fair Oaks, which we'll start to cover in this episode. As you all recall, in the spring of eighteen sixty two, Confederate General Joseph E. Johnston's withdrawal up the peninsula toward richmond and the slow but steady pursuit of the Army of the Potomac led by George B. McClellan had brought matters to a head as the Federals closed in on the rebel capital.
2: McClellan positioned his army in such a way as to maintain pressure on Richmond from the east, while at the same time protecting his base at White House Landing on the Pamunkey River and to prepare for a junction with reinforcements marching overland from northern Virginia. In fact, McClellan had positioned the Army of the Potomac so that it straddled the Chickahominy River. He had placed more than half his troops, three of his five corps, north of the river. This was a strange disposition of his army but McClellan was preparing to bring his siege train within firing distance of Richmond, and he would need the nearby rail line to transport those enormous weapons.
0: Joe Johnston's withdrawal up the peninsula had frustrated Confederate President Jefferson Davis to no end and had alarmed Davis's military adviser Robert E. Lee. When the two men had tried to get Johnston to discuss his plans for defeating McClellan, Johnston mostly ignored them, instead continuing his withdrawal until he was behind richmond's defenses, where he watched and waited, ready to react to any mistake or opportunity presented by the enemy. That, however, is the most charitable explanation for Joe Johnston's actions, that is, that in an effort to keep his options open and to limit risks, he deliberately avoided making a commitment to a fixed plan. But this just made Davis and Lee more apprehensive, especially when at times it seemed as if Johnston would prefer to evacuate Richmond rather than fight for it.
2: But if Joe Johnston's game was waiting for a golden opportunity to strike out at McClellan, then that opportunity materialized near the end of May. The Yankees had rebuilt Bottoms Bridge one of the bridges across the Chickahominy destroyed by the rebels, and then two federal corps had moved across the river. McClellan knew that having his army straddle the Chickahominy was awkward and left him vulnerable, so he set in motion efforts to construct or rebuild eleven bridges between Bottoms Bridge and Mechanicsville in order to facilitate the communication between the two wings of his army. But the fact remained that by May 25th, the Chickahominy physically divided the Army of the Potomac, with those two corps south of the river and the other three corps remaining north of it.
0: Joe Johnston, recognizing the golden opportunity to strike the Yankees while McClellan's army was divided by the Chickahominy, determined to attack one or both of the enemy wings. Johnston began to develop his plan after further consolidating his forces by moving Benjamin Huger's troops from Petersburg to Drury's Bluff bluff, and advising Lawrence O'Brien Branch at Gordonsville and Joseph Reed Anderson near Fredericksburg to shift their forces closer to the endangered capital. That would mean that about 75,000 rebel troops would be concentrated near Richmond, and that would be the largest force ever assembled in the field by the Confederacy up to that time.
2: Johnston's initial idea was to strike the extreme right of McClellan's army north of the Chickahominy in conjunction with a smaller assault against the right flank of the two corps south of the river. His decision to move against the Federals north of the Chickahominy with his main attack was based on the urgency created by the belief that McDowell was marching southward to link up with McClellan. This belief was strengthened on May 27th by an engagement 15 miles north of Richmond at Hanover Courthouse, which we talked about in the last episode. That small battle at Hanover Courthouse appeared to Joe Johnston, to signal that the link-up between McDowell and McClellan was imminent. A successful Confederate attack north of the Chickahominy would drive McClellan back and prevent such a union.
0: Although he neglected to inform Davis or Lee of his plans, Johnston scheduled the attack for May 29th, but the night before that, information coming in from Confederate cavalry commanded by Jeb Stuart indicated a change in the enemy plans. The new report said that McDowell was no longer headed south to link up with McClellan, but was instead being withdrawn and sent westward to reinforce Union forces operating against Stonewall Jackson out in the Shenandoah Valley.
2: So now, with an entirely different set of circumstances confronting him, with the news that McDowell was no longer marching to link up with McClellan— Joe Johnston no longer needed to attack in order to prevent the unification of enemy forces in front of Richmond. But the situation, with McClellan's army straddling the Chickahominy, was still ripe for exploitation, and so the Confederate commander decided he would still go over to the offensive. But now his main effort would be south of the river, where he would strike and crush the weaker of the two enemy wings— and then be free to turn his victorious army on the remainder of McClellan's force north of the Chickahominy.
0: Civil War atlases that we've recommended to you is the West Point one, and if you have that atlas handy, then you can turn to page 31 and find two maps that will help you make sense of the situation leading up to the Battle of Fair Oaks, and also the movements of each side during the battle. But even if you don't have those maps, you can still visualize the situation in your mind's eye. Just picture the Chickahominy River running generally northwest to southeast, and Richmond is just off to the west. North of the river are three federal corps, those of Porter, Franklin, and Sumner. South of the river are two federal corps, those of Keyes and Heinzelman. Joe Johnston's plan was to defeat the Federals south of the Chickahominy before help could arrive for them from north of the river. What made a Confederate victory even more likely was that on May 30th, a violent rainstorm struck the area, and the Chickahominy rose three to four feet above normal. That meant the low, swampy bottomlands bordering the river became inundated and completely impassable. Corduroy roads disappeared in the mud, and swift currents ripped away the bridges the Yankees were working on. In short, it was the perfect time for the Confederates to attack the Federals south of the river, since under the circumstances, it would be almost impossible for McClellan to reinforce them.
2: Johnston's attack plan would take advantage of three roads emanating from Richmond. The first, Nine Mile Road, was on Richmond's northeastern edge and passed through Fair Oaks Station, a stop on the Richmond and York River Railroad. The road then intersected with the Williamsburg Road at Seven Pines. Nine Mile Road was named for the nine miles it ran from Richmond to Seven Pines. Fair Oaks was a mile northwest of Seven Pines and six miles from Richmond.
0: To the south of Nine Mile Road was the Williamsburg Road, which followed a generally straight course east from Richmond seven miles to Seven Pines and across the Chickahominy at Bottoms Bridge. At no time were Nine Mile Road and the Williamsburg Road more than two and a quarter miles apart.
2: The third road was the Charles City Road, which branched off from the Williamsburg Road roughly two miles beyond Richmond, traveling southeast. Beyond Charles City Road and Williamsburg Road, near Seven Pines, sprawled White Oak Swamp. So if all of that's confusing, here's really what you need to know that Joe Johnston planned to use those three roads to strike the enemy south of the Chickahominy simultaneously, head-on, and on both flanks. Such a maneuver is called a double envelopment. In preparation, Johnston divided his army in half, creating a left wing under Gustavus Smith and a right wing under James Longstreet, each with three divisions. Smith would hold two of the left-wing divisions, Magruder's and A.P. Hills in reserve along the upper Chickahominy northeast of Richmond to prevent the crossing of federal reinforcements there. His third division under WHC Whiting would support Longstreet to the south.
0: Longstreet's wing three divisions totaling nearly 40,000 men would make the main attack striking east toward Seven Pines on those three different roads. Benjamin Uge would take the Charles City Road, D.H. Hill was assigned the Williamsburg Road, and Longstreet himself, supported by Whiting, would attack on the Nine Mile Road.
2: If all worked according to plan, Johnston would be committing as many as 51,600 of his 74,000 troops against the 33,000 men of those two federal corps isolated south of the river. The battle was to begin at 8 o'clock on the morning of Saturday, May 31st.
0: This was Joe Johnston's first offensive of the war, and his plan appeared deceptively easy. Indeed, one of Johnston's staff officers later recalled that, quote, it was an excellent and well-devised scheme, and apparently as simple as any plan could be, end quote.
2: But while the plan was simple, in fact, many things would go wrong. Stephen Sears, author of the excellent book about the Peninsula Campaign titled *To the Gates of Richmond*, notes that quote, few battles ever go entirely as their generals plan them, but seldom does a battle stray as far from plan as Seven Pines on May thirty-first, eighteen sixty-two.
0: And Seven Pines is what the Confederates would call the battle, while the Federals would name it Fair Oaks.
2: Yeah, this ended up being one of those Civil War battles with two names. At any rate, Joe Johnston's challenge with regard to his plan was one of coordinating several separate columns advancing into battle at the same time, but out of sight of each other. And in this, the Confederates would fail miserably. During the war, staff work and clearly written orders would prove to be a significant weakness of Joe Johnston's and here, for this battle, Johnston's gravest error in this department was to give Longstreet only verbal instructions. Longstreet met with Johnston on the afternoon of May 30th, and Johnston should have wrote out explicit orders of his simple plan, because whatever Longstreet thought he heard from the Confederate commander, it was not the plan that Johnston envisioned. There's no record of their conversation Friday afternoon. All that can be said for it of of certain is that it produced a colossal misunderstanding of how the upcoming battle was to be fought.
0: Johnston did issue written orders to Hill, Magruder, and Uget, which is interesting since Hill and Uget would be under Longstreet's command for the attack. At any rate, the timing of the entire operation depended on Uge. When his lead brigade arrived at a predetermined position on the Charles City Road, about a mile and a half south of Seven Pines, Uget was to signal Hill, who would then launch his attack in the center. On hearing the sound of Hill's assault, Longstreet on the left would throw his troops into action. Later, after making sure the Confederate right flank was secure, Uget would be free to strike north for Seven Pines, where he would assist D.H. Hill.
2: But, incredibly, Johnston's orders to Uge were incomplete and didn't even state the intention to fight a battle on May 31st, which understandably left Uget greatly confused. Johnston also failed to clarify to Uget the command relationship with regard to Longstreet, which was a serious omission and a potential source of confusion given the fact that Uge technically outranked Longstreet. Stephen Sears observes that, quote, Johnston was not a general noted for his attention to detail, and Seven Pines would demonstrate how careless he could be, end quote.
3: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast.
1: Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. By contrasting both the experiences of contemporaries and the conclusions of historians, Grey History dives into the detail and unpacks one of the most important and disputed events in human history. From a revolution based on hope and liberty to its descent into the infamous Reign of Terror, There's plenty to discuss, and plenty of grey to explore. One can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So if you're looking for your next long-form, binge-worthy history podcast, one recommended by universities and loved by enthusiasts, then check out Grey History, the French Revolution today. Or simply search for the French Revolution.
0: At dawn on Saturday morning, May 31st, Under low-lying clouds and on roads muddy from the previous night's rainstorm, the Confederate army lurched into motion, marching eastward. Typically, Joe Johnston hadn't bothered to inform Jefferson Davis or Robert E. Lee of his plans, but with so many troops in motion that morning, practically everyone in Richmond knew that something momentous was occurring. Expectant crowds gathered early on the hilltops east of Richmond in hopes of catching a glimpse of the battle that might determine the fate of the city.
2: The morning, however, passed, and no sounds of battle were heard. By noon, thousands of spectators were growing impatient. As John B. Jones, a War Department clerk, noted in his diary, they were, quote, venting their criticisms like an audience at a theater when some accident or disarrangement behind the scenes prevents the curtain from rising." Quote. The attack, scheduled to kick off at 8 a.m., started late because, because Longstreet took the wrong road. As a result of what Johnston later mildly labeled, quote, a misunderstanding, Longstreet, instead of advancing down the nine-mile road, marched his division south to the Williamsburg Road. This meant that Johnston's three-pronged assault would be reduced to two. It also meant the attack would be hours late in getting started, for in moving the wrong way, Longstreet's six brigades at the Charles City Road intersection blocked the path of the division led by Uget, who was the key to launching the initial assault.
0: Still well behind Confederate lines, Longstreet's men stopped to build a bridge across rain-swollen Gillies Creek, and then nearly 14,000 soldiers filed across one by one, and all the while Uget's division was forced to wait behind them. A bewildered Uget went to find Longstreet and located him at D.H. Hill's headquarters. Longstreet told Uget that he, Longstreet, was moving to attack with Hill, and that Uget should follow the Charles City Road and support the main assault. This was the first that Uget knew of Longstreet's role in the attack, or indeed that Longstreet had been placed in tactical command of the day's operations, since, as we mentioned before, Joe Johnston's poorly written orders had left Uget in the dark.
2: And so, only D.H. Hill's march went as planned. Advancing east on the Williamsburg Road, Hill's men stopped about a thousand yards short of the Yankee picket line and waited impatiently for the signal indicating that Huger had moved into place. Hill had about eight thousand five hundred men in four brigades. They were deployed on either side of the road in thick woods and tangled undergrowth. Visibility in such terrain was so poor that Hill, in an attempt to avoid friendly fire incidents, had each of the men in his division fasten a white strip of cloth to their hats and caps. At last, at about 1 p.m., Hill learned that Uge's lead brigade had come into position to the south on the Charles City Road, five hours late because of Longstreet's mistake in taking the wrong road. At any rate, D.H. Hill immediately launched his men forward toward the enemy division commanded by Silas Casey.
0: Casey's men of Key's 4th Corps were the greenest troops in the Army of the Potomac. Casey's division was also under strength and poorly equipped. They were clearly the wrong outfit to put in a position as critical as Seven Pines, but there they were, and to make matters worse, Casey had failed to send out scouts or patrols. As a result, D.H. Hill's on Confederates easily broke Casey's advance line, consisting of pickets and the 103rd Pennsylvania.
2: As the rebels advanced, however, they ran into stiff resistance from Casey's main line of defense. The Federals were entrenched in a clearing behind an abatis, that is, trees felled so as to create an obstacle to advancing troops. The Yankees had thrown up a quarter-mile-long line of rifle pits, at the center of which was an unfinished five-sided earthen fort grandly known as casey's redoubt which was defended by six pieces of artillery
0: for a time the federal line held but the confederates outnumbered the badly prepared defenders by nearly two to one and the attackers used this advantage to the fullest Brigadier General Robert Rhodes led his troops against the front of Casey's Redoubt, and a brigade under Gabriel Raines swept around to the right and rear of the little fort. Rebel sharpshooters climbed trees at the fringe of White Oak Swamp, and from their lofty perches began to target the enemy cannoneers and their artillery horses inside the redoubt. D.H. Hill personally led Captain Thomas H. Carter's battery to a position from which Carter's guns could rake the enemy fieldworks
2: the commander of the federal field guns in the little fort went down and the redoubt's defenders began to scamper for the rear now the confederates charged and casey's line was broken casey tried to rally his men an officer remembered the general quote, "raging among his retreating men hatless his white hair streaming in the wind" end quote. another officer later recalled that although the division's camps were overrun quote, Old Casey was as brave as a lion, and remained while his men would stand. He lost everything but the clothes he stood in. End quote.
0: As the surging rebels came streaming down the Williamsburg Road, 4th Corps Commander Erasmus Keyes sent two of Darius Couch's regiments, the 55th New York and the 10th Massachusetts, forward to check the enemy advance. But the New Yorkers were driven back, and the 10th Massachusetts was threatened with encirclement. A captain in the 10th wrote of how, quote, It really seemed as though a man could not live there one moment. There was a perfect hissing in the air above and around us of grape and canister, shot and shell, bullet slugs and buckshot, end quote. Nearly surrounded, the Massachusetts men joined in the retreat.
2: By three o'clock, the Federal battle lines had reformed back at Seven Pines, and the going got tougher for D.H. Hill's attacking Confederates. They had fought forward without reinforcement for two hours, and now they faced a much larger force of Union defenders, because the remnants of Casey's battered division were shored up now by Darius Couch's division and by two brigades of Phil Kearney's division. Kearney had come rushing up to Seven Pines' crossroads from three miles back, he deployed his two brigades on the federal left, south of the Williamsburg Road, and launched a flanking counterattack that carried De Casey's overrun encampment. Kearney later wrote to his wife, saying, quote, Another haphazard battle where I was sent for to redeem the blundering and shortcomings of others. End quote. And again, as at Williamsburg, the feisty, one armed Union general seemed to lead a charmed life, galloping back and forth along the line of battle. Unscathed amidst a hail of enemy fire. He enjoyed himself immensely, and when an officer asked where he ought to deploy his regiment, Kearney answered merrily, Oh, anywhere. Tis all the same, Colonel. You'll find lovely fighting along the whole line.
0: The brunt of Kearney's counterattack fell upon Rhodes' brigade. Rhodes had counted on the support of Raines on his right, but Raines' troops had bogged down on the fringes of White Oak Swamp and failed to keep pace. The going was tough enough even for Rhodes' Alabamians and Mississippians, as in spots they had to fight in swamp water that was hip-deep and prop their wounded up against tree trunks to keep them from drowning.
2: Rhodes himself took a nasty wound in the arm, but remained in command for two more hours until pain and weakness forced him to leave the field. He turned over command to an energetic 30-year-old Georgian, Colonel John B. Gordon of the 6th Alabama, a businessman who had been trained in the law, Gordon had begun his military career only the year before, when he was elected captain of a company of men from the hill country of Georgia and Alabama known as the Raccoon Roughs.
0: His wife had followed him north to Virginia, and that afternoon she sat on a hilltop outside Richmond, just a few miles away, listening to the fierce sounds of battle. A companion said Fanny Gordon was, quote, pale and quiet, with clasped hands, statue-like, with their face toward the field of battle.
2: On that field of battle, Gordon's horse was shot from under him, and his coat nicked with bullets, as he led his men on a charge through the tangled abatis in front of Couch's division of Federals. Gordon's lieutenant colonel and Major were both killed, and his men fell on all sides. Gordon got a shock when, as he was urging his men forward, he saw an all-too-familiar face. He later wrote, quote, I passed my young brother, only 19 years old, but captain of one of the companies. He had been shot through the lungs and was bleeding profusely. I did not stop. I could not stop. There was no time for that. No time for anything except to move on and fire on. End quote. The younger Gordon somehow survived his wound, but during the assault, the 6th Alabama lost 59% of its men, including 91 killed, the most for any Confederate regiment during a single action in the entire war.
0: While Gordon and others in D.H. Hill's division struggled to maintain their momentum, Hill sent an urgent plea for help to Longstreet, who remained in the rear. But Longstreet, who was obviously still confused about the battle plan, had misdirected four of his six brigades. He sent one brigade north to guard the line of the railroad, though there was no federal force in that direction, and then he dispatched three more brigades down the Charles City Road, where Euget already had three idle brigades covering the Confederate right flank. At last, responding to Hill's calls for help, Longstreet put his two remaining brigades to good use. One under Colonel James L. Kemper marched up in support of John B. Gordon's hard-pressed line opposite Kearney.
2: As Kemper's men approached the fighting, they came upon a demoralizing sight. Private Alexander, Private Alexander Hunter of the 17th Virginia remembered, quote, long streams of wounded made their appearance on their way back to the rear, in every species of mutilation. Some were borne on stretchers, others swung in blankets, from whose folds blood and gore dropped in horrible discharges, staining the ground and crimsoning the budding grass. As Kemper's troops crossed the abandoned earthworks and charged through Casey's empty camp, they were caught in a murderous crossfire, which was recounted in that quote from Private Hunter that Tracy read at the top of the show.
0: Meantime, the other brigade that Longstreet had committed was executing a bold maneuver. Starting out from the Williamsburg Road under the command of Brigadier General Richard H. Anderson, the brigade attacked northeastward, following the line of a dirt track, fighting nearly to the Nine Mile Road and splitting the Federal defensive line between Fair Oaks and Seven Pines. Then, at about 4 p.m., Anderson assigned two of his regiments to Colonel Micah Jenkins, a gifted South Carolinian who, at first Manassas and Williamsburg, had already shown bold leadership.
2: Jenkins' men fought south to Seven Pines, then audaciously cut east on the Williamsburg Road, slicing right through the Federal Center. General Couch, four of his blue-clad regiments, and an artillery battery were separated from the rest of the division and retreated north toward Fair Oaks. Jenkins wrote, quote, Pouring in my volleys at close range as I advanced, I drove them back, losing heavily myself, but killing numbers of the enemy, leaving the ground carpeted with dead and dying.
0: Not long before dusk, Jenkins' 2-regiment Blitzkrieg had smashed forward to a point half a mile east of Seven Pines. During the advance, ten of eleven South Carolinians in the color guard of the Palmetto sharpshooters were cut down by enemy fire, but their battle flag never touched the ground. Phil Kearney, who had been more than holding his own on the Federal left, was forced by Jenkins' bold thrust to fall back about a mile to protect his suddenly threatened flank.
2: Back to the rear on the Williamsburg Road, Longstreet, who still knew little about the true situation as the battle progressed, had nonetheless decided around 4 o'clock that the right flank needed help and sent Joe Johnston a note requesting reinforcements. Though his attack was succeeding, Longstreet reported, his troops, quote, were as sensitive about the flanks as a virgin, end quote.
0: Joe Johnson would never admit publicly that his battle plan had miscarried right from the get-go, and he even later persuaded Gustavus Smith to alter his official report so as to say nothing of Longstreet's failings. But the truth is that at his headquarters along the Nine Mile Road, Joe Johnson had spent much of the day perplexed and bewildered, not even aware that a battle was raging at Seven Pines. One of the few things Johnston did know was that Longstreet inexplicably had taken the wrong road. He had sent out couriers that morning to look for his errant general, and after they found Longstreet down on the Williamsburg Road about ten a m, Johnston had despaired knowing that his plan had already hopelessly unraveled and muttered, I wish all the troops were back in camp.
2: But managing to rally somewhat from that disappointment, Johnston had still hoped to salvage his plan for a three-pronged attack on the Federals. Although Whiting's division had originally been earmarked as Longstreet's support, Johnston decided to launch it against Fair Oaks as soon as he heard firing from D.H. Hill's division on the Williamsburg Road. Accordingly, before noon, Johnston moved Whiting's five brigades down the Nine Mile Road to a place called Old Tavern, two miles from Fair Oaks. There, setting up his field headquarters in a farmhouse, Johnston waited with Gustavus Smith and Whiting for the sound of Hill's attack.
0: But the hours passed. Robert E. Lee, who had ridden out from Richmond with Jefferson Davis, came up to the farmhouse and said he thought he heard musketry. No, Johnston assured Lee, it was just an intermittent artillery duel. In another part of the house, staff officers heard the heavy musket fire two miles to the south, but not having been told of its significance as a signal for Whiting's attack, they said nothing.
2: Not until Longstreet's call for reinforcements came shortly after 4 p.m. did Joe Johnston realize what was happening. He wasted little time on recriminations, even though, in advancing down the nine-mile road, He was being asked to do what Longstreet himself was supposed to have done hours before. Instead, Johnston took personal command of Whiting's division and started down Nine Mile Road toward the battlefield, galloping away just as Jefferson Davis arrived at the farmhouse. If he saw Davis, and it's hard to believe he didn't, Johnston made no effort to stop. He almost certainly didn't want to have to answer embarrassing questions from the President about his fouled-up battle plan, and besides, he was in a hurry to get Whiting's division into action.
0: Late on that Saturday afternoon, it was still possible for Joe Johnston to salvage a victory from the botched battle. Though he didn't know it, Micah Jenkins' thrust had split the Federal defenders at Seven Pines, and so if Johnston swooped down from the Confederate left with the 10,000 men of Whiting's division, he could link up with Jenkins to deliver a decisive blow. But in a day already filled with unhappy mishaps for Joe Johnston, yet another frustration now lay ahead of him on the nine-mile road.
2: And that's where we'll leave things this time. Next time, we'll look at the rest of what happens on the first day of the fighting, and then talk about the action and inaction on the second day of the battle. Unfortunately, you guys will have to wait a bit for the next episode. Since with Christmas coming up and with travel plans, we won't have episode number 137 out to you until the first weekend of 2016, but that'll just give you something to look forward to in the new year, right?
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is... Fair Oaks 1862 McClellan's Peninsula Campaign by Angus Constan
2: This is an offering in Osprey Publishing's Campaign series and it follows the same format as the other books in that series with lots of great maps and illustrations uh, the painting on pages 74 and 75 depicting the storming of Casey's Redoubt is particularly striking
0: Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org.
2: We have some new members of the Strawfoot Brigade to thank this week, Nick H., Fred H., Joe F., and Joe B. And you members of the Strawfoot Brigade can look for a little something in your stockings, probably Christmas Eve, since that's when we plan on having the next New Orleans episode out to you guys.
0: And then as we close, we also wanted to thank Edward R. in Georgia for his donation this past week.
2: And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again in two weeks' time when we'll continue with our discussion of the Battle of Fair Oaks. But until then, happy holidays and take care.
0: Thanks, everyone. Bye.